For more than two years, Larry Morrow shared incredible conversations with broadcast legends from Cleveland and around the world with his radio audience on Salem Broadcasting. The radio program was called Larry Morrow's Take Two. So now it's time to take you back to those 30-minute shows as we do a podcast replay here on the Larry from the Heart podcast platform. Subscribe to this podcast and remember to share it with a friend. This is Larry Morrow's Take Two, the podcast. Enjoy. Hi, this is Larry Morrow, and this is Take Two, the radio program that looks inside a person's adventure, not so much from the outside in, but the inside out. In the next 30 minutes, you will discover the inward joy of their heart that married them to their passion for life and the affirmation of ideals that directed their success. Today, we take a departure from our regular in-studio session of Take Two for an incredible phone conversation with one of Cleveland's most loved and respected television journalists. His name is Leon Bibb. Because we had so much to talk about and limited time to talk to you, we have broken this up into two parts, last weekend and this weekend. So let's continue our conversation with Leon Bibb. You know what I think, what I find also interesting regarding Vietnam and in Bowling Green, while you were ducking bullets, you were inspired by your buddy to apply for graduate school at Bowling Green. And and your beloved Marguerite, did she embrace that at the time? Yeah, I, I told her, and you know, I wrote her and, uh, you know, we didn't talk that entire time I was there because there was no satellite telephone technology at that time. So we didn't talk. Mm-hmm. Whatever we said was was written in letters or on audio tape, which we would send back and forth in audio reels of tape. But uh, uh, I told her I wanted to go to graduate school because I'd seen some guys who were uh, television reporters. I had a degree in journalism when I got when I got drafted, and I had been working at the Plain Dealer as a newspaper reporter when Uncle Sam tapped me on the shoulder and drafted me to the army. In Vietnam, I saw network correspondence. And I said, I think I could do that, too. I mean, I've got the journalism background so far, and uh, I worked a little bit in radio at college. I said, I think I uh, could, uh, could apply. So I applied for graduate school back in my alma mater of Bowling Green. And the acceptance to graduate school, two more years of college, came to Vietnam. And all I had to do was, okay, I just got to survive the war, and then I'm going back to Bowling Green for another two years, which was the plan. That's what we did. We all have a story that becomes a critical turning point in our lives. You have so many, but this one dates back all the way to 1971. It became a watershed moment in your life because you picked up a hitchhiker. And when you picked up that hitchhiker, your life would never be the same in becoming a TV anchor. I find that story to be fascinating. Would you share it with us? It it was a cold day in January of uh, 1971, I guess. Yeah, 71. And uh, I was a reporter photographer for WTOL, Channel 11 in Toledo. That's the CBS station. And I was working alone, as I oftentimes did, because I was my own photographer. So I had a camera in the, in the, in the backseat of my unmarked television news car. And I was driving on West Bancroft Street on a cold day. And I see this young man hitchhiking. And I passed him. I didn't pick him up. And I felt guilty about it because I recognized his face. I didn't know him, his name. I knew I had just seen him casually somewhere at a party or something like that. 
And I drove, and I'm in a company car, so why go? Why pick up hitchhikers? So I drove for about a mile, and a voice kept telling me, "Pick him up, pick him up, pick him up," and it gnawed on me. And I made a U-turn about a mile down the road, came back through a series of one-way streets. He was still there in the cold, hitchhiking, and I gave him a ride. He was a student going to the University of Toledo. As he got in, he looked at my profile, me driving, and looked in the back seat and saw the television cameras at WTOL Television Channel 11 in Toledo. He says, you're Leon Biff. Aren't you the new guy, the new reporter? I was a brand new street reporter. Not well known, but I was new. He may have been the only black, I think I was the only black reporter there at that particular time at that station. And uh, he says, I told him, yeah, I'm Leon. And he says, you know, my girlfriend's mother wondered, whatever happened to you? And I said, who's your girlfriend's mother? He said, she's the public (laughs) affairs director for the NBC station in Columbus. And you had applied at some point when you were in college, down at Columbus, but there was nothing happening. And she was impressed with you. She saw tape on you or film on you. And she was impressed. And she told me about you and wondered where you were. He says, why don't you call her and tell her you're in Toledo? So that night, I called Ann Walker, who was the public affairs director at the NBC station in Columbus. And she said, "Bunny, you should call. There's a job opening. Are you available for work down here? I says, yeah, I'm not under contract at the Toledo. You just work here. I have no contract at all. So she says, I want you to call the news director, but don't call him for 30 minutes. I want to call him first. She did. I called him 30 minutes later. He says, Ann says, you're pretty good. Why don't we get you down here for an audition? So the day of the audition, which was like a week later, it was 10 below zero across the entire state. This is wintertime Ohio. And of course, Mm -hmm. my Volkswagen bug has a dead battery. And I'm dead in the water. How am I going to get two and a half hours down the road from Toledo to Columbus? So I called the news director. I tell him, I told him, I'm going to be late. He says, you're going to come still? I said, I can get there if you don't mind my being six hours late. But I got to wait for the bus to schedule. And he says, you're going to take a Greyhound bus? I says, yes, indeed. He says, I'll see you when you get here. And I took the Greyhound bus. And when I walked into Channel 4 in Columbus, the news director looked at me and he says, Kid, I want you to know something. You've got character. It's not everybody who would take a bus in 10 below zero <laughs> weather just for an interview two and a half hours away. And he put me through the motions there. We did a little audition and he says, I'll call you tomorrow. And he gave me a ride back to the bus station. I came back to Toledo. The next day he offered me a job uh, over the telephone and I took the job as a reporter. And he says, can you be here? When can you be here? I said, I can make it in three weeks. He says, can you make it in two weeks? I'm in a tight spot. So I says, I'll be there in two weeks. Three weeks from the day of the hitchhiker, I walked into that station. And uh, he says, funny thing has happened. I need you also to be my weekend co-anchor man at 11 o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays. And I walked into that job from a hitchhiker. And I always say it was the voice of God who spoke to me oh, yeah. in the car, who said, pick him up. There's no doubt in my mind, not a doubt in my mind, whose voice I heard that day. And I've never seen the hitchhiker. I never saw him again. 
Maybe maybe that was God in the car with you, Leon. You don't know for sure. <laughs> you know, that that's something to think about. Maybe it was God. And, you know, yeah, somebody once, I told the story, said, and somebody, I told them, I said, I listened to the voice. And somebody, a minister told me, Leon, not only did you listen to the voice, you obeyed the voice. <laughs> I think sometimes God speaks to us, and, and we're asked to do things that don't make much sense. But if you're if you know it's the voice of God, God always makes sense. You bet. You know, Leon, when I, uh, it reminds me of a story when uh, I had been working in a very small market in Jackson, Michigan, and, and yeah. I was told that, that, if, that if I had been there over a year, um, then uh, you'd probably never make it in the business because everyone that had worked at this one radio station, they, they left and they went to bigger markets. So I yeah. worked there for you. When I got my, so I, I went to a larger market, and when the guy hired me, I got in my car, because it was the first time I was going to make over $50 a week, and he said, <laughs> we're going to pay you $100 a week. I got in my car and screamed <laughs> that I was so fortunate to finally have it, and I thought, you know what? I'm on my way, man. I, made, I'm, I went home to tell my mother and father, I can start paying rent. I said, I'm, I'm up to $100 a week. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? You know, when I left Toledo to go to Columbus, I made $30 more a week. 30 more a week. I got up to $162. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that was, you know, I moved for $30 a week, but I moved for the opportunity. I mean, it, it was a long time before there was any money. I mean, I was one step off of welfare, but I was on the air. Well, that was the important thing, man, and where people could right. see you, hear your name, and know that you were on your way. Um, I uh, wanted to be like I, you. I wanted to be like you. I wanted a name that was out there. I mean, you were doing CKLW up in Windsor, yep. Ontario. I mean, I wanted to be yep. like you, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> on April 14, 1968, uh, Leon, the unthink- the unthinkable happened. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. died at the hands of James Earl Ray. We all felt that pain of that sad story. Another Leon first happened when you had the opportunity to sit in the cell with a guy who killed Dr. King, James Earl Ray. What was that like? Share that moment with us, because you were going to be one of a few people that had even been in the presence of James Earl Ray. Well, it was it was Larry Flint, the pornographer of of uh, well of Hustler magazine which was based in Columbus, where I was working in television, who said, I can get you in, because he was trying to get James Earl Ray a new trial. He thought he was not guilty of the murder of Dr. King, so he told me. So he says, why don't you come down with me, and I'm just going to follow, I was just going to follow the story. Follow, if I get an interview with James Earl Ray, because Flint says, interview Leon, I mean, he, he would do it. He wouldn't do it otherwise. So I went down with Flint, and, uh, the, the strange thing is when uh, when when James Earl Ray walked into the holding area where we were all locked up, uh, and I had a camera there, and my cameraman Bruce Johansson was on camera that day. When James Earl Ray walked in under under secure guard, he looked at me and he says, "Are you the man who's going to interview me?" And I said, "Yes, I am." And he says, "How you doing? I'm James Earl Ray." And then he extended mm. his hand. 
Now, for a moment now, it's like in slow motion, when I see his hand come up to me for a handshake, I'm realizing that's the hand that killed Dr. King. That's the hand that killed the man who I followed. That's the man who killed the man, Dr. King. Were it not for Dr. King, I wouldn't even be here doing the kind of work I'm doing. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I would, if I said, no, I'm not going to shake your hand, he could have said, well, no, I'm not doing an interview and walk away. Then I would have lost everything. So I shook his hand. Now I got another question. What do I say? I don't say, good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hey, how are things going here? Nothing. I didn't say that. I just shook his hand and said, I'm Leon Dead. Why don't you have a seat right here and we'll put a microphone? So that was the extent. That was the extent of, of our opening session. And then he was very nervous and very fidgety, and his eyes were always moving during the interview. Larry Flint and I interviewed him together, and uh, he was very nervous and denied killing Dr. King and said he had nothing at all to do with it and, and that uh, that he didn't have anything against Dr. King and uh, uh, or, or anything like that, although he admitted to killing Dr. King in trial. That's why he didn't, they didn't give him a death penalty. So he admitted doing it once they caught him, and his fingerprints were on the gun, and they caught him 31 days later in Great Britain, getting on a flight to a white-run Rhodesia in Africa at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's when American authorities tracked him down and brought him back to the States, where he admitted killing Dr. King in trial and was sentenced to Brushy Mount State Penitentiary in Tennessee. Well, you know, but I don't want to glide over this this uh, moment because, Leon, we all have moments in our lives where you sit back and you say, you know what, this is a turning point in my life as well. Did you, After you had interviewed James Earl Ray and knew how important that interview was, did you feel it? Yeah, I did feel it. <clears throat> I felt it. I mean, what, I, what we had just done, and I was with Larry Flint, by the way, who, who two weeks later was shot himself and paralyzed for the rest of his life down in right. Georgia. And here I was in Tennessee with Larry Flint running around with him, you know, doing a profile on him and on James Earl Ray, because it was a local story. It was a Columbus story. Larry Flint was from Columbus. But I, I, I gave a lot of thought to it. You know, I had, I had photographed Martin Luther King in 1965, when I worked at the Cleveland Call and Post newspaper, I was an intern, still in college, home for the summer. And uh, the Call and Post gave me a job as a reporter, photographer, and I photographed Dr. King when he came to Cleveland. So, I, so I'd seen Dr. King. I'd been in his presence. And now I'm in the presence of uh, the assassin. And I would later be in the presence of Coretta Scott King and have dinner with her and introduce her at a program here in Cleveland and later interview Martin Luther King III. So I was always, I was around the whole King story over a period of years. But it was very sobering to, to, to interview James Earl Ray uh, for the 20 minutes or 25 minutes that we had together. And uh, I think about it a lot, and, and I still got the tape to it. I, I still, the film, we filmed it, and, and we've transferred over to uh, something that we can use more digital now. But I still have mm-hmm. it at my home. But, you know, I remember one of, my, one of my conversations with you. I remember you sharing the story of meeting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when, when, when he came to Cleveland. 
But it was the way that you connected with him. You remember what what you said to me then? <clears throat> oh yeah, he was uh, he was speaking at East 40th and Scoville Avenue, which is now called East 40th and, and Community College Drive on the near east side, right down the street from what is now Community College. The college was not there at that particular time, and it was a hot summer day. And uh, I remember I, when I was assigned to go take photographs of Dr. King for the call and post. Uh, I was in the in the back of the line. So many people that put themselves uh, uh, in this little shopping area, parking lot, that I was in the back because I got there late. Dr. King had not yet come out to speak. And I, uh, I, I, I told people I had to get up front because I was a 20-year-old newspaper reporter. And they said, well, we've been here all day long. And we've held our positions and you come late, now you want to get on the front row. That ain't going to happen. And I, I thought about it. I said, well, I'm a reporter. I'm with the Colin Post newspaper. And they said, oh, well, you should have said that. Come on up front. And they, they let me do it. it the, the people parted as if it was the Red Sea party. This is a newsman. Let him up. Let him. I've been using that line ever since, by the way. And, and so we got up there. And then when Dr. King came out uh, to, to speak on, the, on this flatbed truck where they had loudspeakers attached, he and Ralph Abernathy and a few other people came out to speak as he walked up the steps. I looked at him and he looked at me and I just kind of said, hi, Dr. King, something like that, like a, like a, the kid I was, 20 years old. And he looked back at me and smiled and waved at me. And, I, and our eyes connected. And I often think about that. That was the first and only time I'd seen Martin Luther King face to face. And I was up close within 10 feet of him. We didn't shake hands or anything, but our eyes connected. And for that moment, he was looking at me, and I was looking at him. And, you know, if you can freeze a moment in time, I had frozen that moment in time, and I often call upon it. And when I was in Vietnam, and Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968, I thought about that moment that I had with him at one moment. Isn't it something that, that there are moments in your life that sort of, and I, and I don't mean this in any egotistical way, but separate you from the pack. And uh, I can remember sitting uh, at my desk one day, and as we all know, President Reagan had been shot and had not left the White House for almost two years. And I got a call yeah. from the head of the Republican Party, and he said, Larry, he said, we just found out that President Reagan is coming to Cleveland. And I said, oh, my, it's right in the middle of our turnaround from 1979 to 89. And he said, we're sitting around thinking, who can we get to introduce him? And I said, well, whoever you get, please let me know, because I'd love to have him on air. I said, what an honor that is. And he said, well, then you're going to have to interview yourself, because we want you to introduce (laughs) the president. I know what I mean. I I had a one-on-one with Reagan in Cleveland. You know, people wondered how, how I got that. You know, but it separates you, and 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 it gives you an amount of confidence too. Sometimes you work hard on just getting the interview, just getting there. Let alone what are you going to write or what are you going to say, just getting there. And uh, that, that 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 was uh, you know another one of those memorable moments in my in my career of talking to you know, Ronald Reagan just before he was elected president. You know, after forty, I'm in my forty second year of television in Cleveland alone just Cleveland, not counting mm-hmm. Toledo and Columbus before that. I can't keep everything. My wife says, you can't keep tape on everything now. 
you know, because it's cluttering up the house. So I have to pick and choose. And I keep stuff <laughs> here. I keep stuff there. Some of it I hide in the garage or, you know, hide in my dressing drawer. Doing my morning show, I would interview maybe five to eight people a, a morning. And I remember having all of those tapes, and I had them in the basement, on those great 12-inch reels. And, yeah. and I said to, to the rosary one day, I said, honey, what are you going to do with them when God finally calls me home? She said, throw them away. And you thought what? And you thought, you thought don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah don't. <laughs> when, you, when, you were, when, 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 when you were doing the radio thing all the time, I've got to believe, you know, the best jockey is you, you guys have spun all the records. Well, when, when, when you when you come on, it was always upbeat. It was always, good afternoon, everybody, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the show. That that kind of attitude. I've got to believe there were days when you just didn't feel like it, or you just didn't feel like being upbeat, but you had to dig that down inside to, to find that rhythm and that, that energy. How did you do that? Well, you know, I don't. I I I remember getting up at two forty. My well, first of all, my show went on the air at five thirty. I got up at two forty-five in the morning, and I arrived at the radio station at at about ten to four. And in those days, there was no internet, so I would sit and read five newspapers, and then clip up this out, and I think, well, that'll be good at six forty-five. That'll be good at seven at seven ten. And so um, those were wonderful days. But Lee and I got to tell you. I, um, there were, yeah, you were days, I would sit in the parking lot and it's like quarter to four in the morning and say, how in the world am I going to turn on that microphone at five thirty and say, good morning, Cleveland. How are you? <laughs> and, yeah, right. but, you know, but we did it, but we did it. And, and, and you've done the very same thing. So many days where you said, how am I going to look in the eye of that camera and make it look like I'm really interested, right? Yeah. Yeah. When, when I'd rather be home. Like on Thanksgiving, yeah. like on like on Christmas night. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know, you know, Leon. We have known each other a long time. We have shared the podium, yeah. the classroom, special one-on-one dinners. There are no words to express my undying respect for you and what and who you are. Everyone in this major market town of Cleveland knows your name and your distinct voice. But what is it, Leon? that we don't know about you and your life? Oh, God. There's so much. <clears throat> I guess there would be much. I mean, pretty much, I'm pretty much an open book, I think. But uh, I like poetry, and I write poetry. Maybe, but people know that. I'm, I'm slowly putting putting uh, a book of poetry together, slowly. I've got a bunch of things. And it's just, just a matter of, of just pulling it all from underneath the bed and boxes and and then putting a cover on it. And I think I've, I've got a publisher I think we're looking at. But one of the things you may not know is I'm in the process of writing a love story. I'm in a love story. I'm, I'm ten, about 10 chapters into it right now. And, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's just, just something that uh, an idea struck me some years ago. And I said, I got to run with this. I got to run with this. And, and it has a life of its own. I've got characters in it. And and they are real, living, breathing people to me. They exist in my mind, in nobody else's mind. They have favorite colors and favorite times. They have birthdays. I've given them all that. Met the man and the woman and some other people who are involved in this love story. 
So that that might be one thing. Another thing is, I love to look at the stars. Last night, I went out, and uh, of course, I, I looked at Halloween night. Halloween was a pretty good night to look as well. I looked at the moon yeah. on Halloween night, and I looked at the moon just last night. It was uh, waning a little bit, and it was in the western sky, in the eastern sky, forgive me, in the eastern sky, and it was rising slowly. I looked at the moon, and then I went to look at my old friend Mars, because Mars is right there in the in our sky as well, and so are Jupiter and Saturn. I could see Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and the moon all at one time, all from my home in front of the, my yard in Shaker Heights. And uh, I love I love that kind of thing. I don't know much about astronomy. I've got a telescope which I use on occasion to, to look at the moon and other things, but. Uh, that that's another thing that I like. It just I, I'm I, I I like stuff like that, and I even I even write write about it. I even wrote a little piece of poetry about you know a, a mm-hmm. I called it dance dancing in the dark about about the uh, Saturn and Jupiter were dancing in the dark because they were right next to each other from our vantage point here on Earth at this particular time, and it was like it was they were like two dancers on the stage on a darkened stage, ballet dancers, and they were together. And they're my old friends, Jupiter and Saturn, and so too is Mars, which is available. I call them my friends. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know what Leon Bibb looks like, and you know how he sounds, which separates him from the rest. Now you know who he is. For Take Two, I'm Larry Morris. So now you know a little bit more about our good friend, Leon Bibb. Next weekend, we'll be talking with an old pal of mine who shared the microphone with me for over a decade, Q104 Sally Spitz. Saturday morning at 9.30 on 1220, The Word, and Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. on 1420, The Answer. By the way, if you enjoy Larry Morrow, take two. Check out Larry from the Heart, the radio series airing on 1220, The Word, and 1420, The Answer. 90-second stories packed with smiles, hope, joy and inspiration designed to make you stop and think about life until next time do all the good you can to everyone you can every time you can this is take two and i'm larry morrow larry morrow's take two is now a podcast series featuring an inspiring library of conversations that larry had with many broadcast legends from cleveland and around the world Subscribe to the podcast and remember to share it with a friend. A new episode releases each week, and it's right here on the Larry from the Heart podcast platform. Thank you for listening.